as we are uh, continuing this study called The Bible and uh, a series of worldview messages that basically seek to take the Bible as a whole and to ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? What does it mean to think biblically about a particular subject? Um, How can we make sure that we have a truly Christian worldview about certain things? And our focus in this message is the subject of racism. Racism is a form of pride. I hope you realize that. Racism is a form of pride in which a person believes himself to be morally, spiritually, or intellectually superior to a person of another skin color by virtue of that skin color. Um, And what I want to do is walk us through some passages in the Bible that will allow the Word to put a dagger into the heart of racism. My prayer is that the Spirit will make unmistakably clear to us in these verses that God does not esteem people of any race as being more valuable or precious in His sight than those of another race. I want us to see that God is glorified in the diversity of the human race. I also want us to understand that no person is incapable of being used mightily by God in the greatest of ways because of the color of their skin. And finally, I want to encourage us as a church to be welcoming and to be loving and to be full of joy when we have opportunities to have persons of another color join us in our church, join us in our homes. Now, before we begin this little trek through the Scriptures, and and we won't get done tonight, and unfortunately, we're going to start the trek tonight, and it will be about a month before we're back to finish this this little subject. So we're going to start tonight, we'll have some weeks off, and then we'll be back uh, on the subject of racism in a few more weeks. But before we start, I do want to say a a word about the word race, the word race. I'm using the word race to refer to people of a common skin color. But that is precisely one reason why the language of race is so misguided. Because two people may have the same skin color and be incredibly different from one another. Um, Two people may have the same skin color and not speak the same language, not share the same culture, not even be from similar parts of the world. As soon as we start talking about black people or white people, we are already grouping people together in a way that is largely superficial. Um, If we were wiser, I think we would use the language of ethnicity. Our ethnicity refers to our heritage, our culture, our language, the, the recent ancestry that we have. There is a sin in which a person of one ethnicity, maybe a white, middle-class, suburban American, believes himself to be inherently more valuable than a person of another ethnicity, maybe a black, lower-class, urban American, by virtue of that ethnicity. 
Right? There is a sin called ethnocentrism in which one thinks that people from my ethnicity, people of my culture and my customs are superior to people of that culture or those customs. Now, that needs to be preached against as well. And that's a little different than the subject of racism. But because we still foolishly attempt to, to lump people together by the color of their skin, and to make these sweeping statements, right? People of this color are better than that color. Uh, I am going to use the language of, of race tonight, tonight. And I want God to save us from uh, actually believing that skin color can make one person better than another. Now, we live in different days than our grandparents and great-grandparents. Not many people would outwardly say that anymore, right? I believe a person of one skin color is superior to another, but it is still uh, very present uh, in particularly where we live. Uh, it undergirds a lot of the relationships that people have. Uh, we see it pop up from time to time. So turn with me to Genesis 1, and let's, let's begin by looking at what the Scriptures say about this subject of racism. Genesis 1, Let's look at verses 26 through 27. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first point I want to make is that there is a fundamental unity to the human race. There is a fundamental unity to the human race. That is, the many people have different skin colors, as well as different cultures, different languages, different customs, there is ultimately one race, the human race. What makes us human is that we bear the image of God. There is no indication anywhere in the Scriptures that people of a certain skin color are excluded from bearing the image of God. Nor is there any indication that people of one skin color bears the image of God better than people of another skin color. Right? It is bearing the image of God that makes us all human. Now, there was a time in our nation's history when slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. Three-fifths of a person. Could it be that some think that certain people are more truly human because of their race than others? There is no evidence for that in Scripture. Genesis 1 teaches that man, all mankind, male and female, whatever race, all of us bear the image of God. There is no three-fifths rule to this. It's just true. Remember the Holocaust. Remember there, how there was this belief at play that, that one race is inherently superior to another. And the only way that one race could be inherently superior 
is if one race was somehow less inherently depraved than another, right? If somehow one race was less affected by sin, if one race was less affected by the fall, then that race by nature would be superior to all the others. But the Bible makes clear that all people are dead in sin. There is no inherently holy race of men. These two things are the great levelers of all mankind. We all bear the image of God and we all bear it in a distorted fashion because we are all great sinners. No race is superior to another race in those matters. We are all the same. We are united in Adam. When Adam entered the covenant of works in Genesis 2, he did so on perhaps on on behalf of every man. And I'm using the word man the way Genesis 1 does, meaning male and female, right? Adam did not enter this covenant with God on behalf of a portion of humanity, on behalf of certain people of certain skin colors of humanity, on behalf of people living in certain regions on the planet. No, when Adam entered into that covenant with God, he did so as the federal head of all humanity. And when Adam fell in the garden, it wasn't just white people who were affected, and it wasn't just Asians or Africans or Latinos. All of us fell as one race. We are fundamentally united. Here's the question. When you see a person of another skin color, do you immediately see all the ways that you are different, or do you immediately see the ways you are the same? In all of the most important aspects, you are the same as a person of another skin color. You share a common father, Adam. You are a part of the same ultimate race, the human race. You share the same basic problem, sin. The solution is the same for both of you, namely salvation in Jesus Christ. When you see a person of another race, you are the same as them in the most obvious physical ways. You both have heads. You both have legs and stomachs and eyes and a nose and a mouth. The fact is, there is far more that unites us to another human being than makes us different and separates us. And this is even more true if that person speaks the same language as you and lives in generally the same culture as you. So why then, when we see somebody of another color, do we become immediately affected by that one difference that that we feel suddenly cut off from that person? There is so much that fundamentally unites us, and yet that one feature makes us feel so different. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I do think that here in the South, there is still a tendency in many of us to look at a person of another skin color as if they are somehow inherently lower or even dirtier than you or I. If a white person fixes you a sandwich with his bare hands, you receive it and eat it. If a black person does the same thing, do you have this feeling that your sandwich is somehow dirty? Or maybe you shake the hand of a, of a Mexican and then without even thinking you, you feel the need to, to wipe your hands on your pants as though you're 
wiping off a cootie. These actions reveal a deep-seated racism that we ought to repent of, that we ought to ask for God's help in overcoming. We need to recognize that fundamentally we are one race, part of one family tree, stretching all the way back to Adam, and we are far more alike than we are different. Now, go to Genesis 10. As we read through the Bible, we might be tempted to assume that the people in the Scriptures were just the same as you and me. Um, Most of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, uh, are Anglos coming from mainly European descent. Folks, the vast majority of the people in the Bible were not Anglos. Jesus was a Jew from the Middle East. And to my knowledge, there is no reason to think that even now in heaven, right, Jesus' glorified form is anything other than that of a glorified Middle Eastern man. The people of Israel were not Anglos. Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, these were our heroes. They were not Anglos. Neither was Paul, neither was Peter, neither was John. Christianity is not a white man's religion or a white woman's religion. And if we think that it is, we're going to be in for quite a shock when we get to heaven. Genesis 10, we have the table of nations. And this is the record of how the human race branched out into all kinds of various tribes and various nations. And the second point that I want to make is this one. God purposed and is glorified in the great diversity of the human race. God purposed and is glorified in the great diversity of the human race. God Himself is one and yet three. It was God's will that the human race fill the earth and develop a vast array of different cultures and different customs, each bringing glory to His name in different ways. Here in Genesis 10, we find that every people group on the planet today can trace their lineage back to one of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from these three sons came an amazing variety of people. Look at verses 2 through 5. These are the Japhethites, right? Just kind of glance over those verses, 2 through 5, right? These sons of Japheth were the original ancestors of the Indo-Europeans. Most of us in this room were probably uh, descendants of Japheth, right? Um, Japheth himself was probably the father of the Greeks. And the inhabitants of ancient Greek believed that their people had come from a a man-god named Iapetos, which we think was actually this man, Japheth. Uh, We know from Assyrian and Greek writings that Gomer, you see the name Gomer there, was the ancestor of the Sumerians who lived in the Caucasus around the Black Sea. So think uh, Ukraine, think Georgia and Armenia and Turkey, think down to Iran. Um, Some of the Celtic and Germanic tribes came from Gomer. You see the name Magog. 
He was thought to be the ancestor of the Scythians who, lived, uh, in, who now live in modern-day Russia. Uh, Medai, widely accepted as the father of the Medes in ancient Iran. Javan was the father of the Ionian Greeks. He had a son named Tarshish, who later had a port city named after him. And you remember the port city of Tarshish because it's where Jonah fled to uh, when he was trying to escape God's missionary call. You see the name Tubal and Meshach. These were ancestors of people in, in what we now know as, as Turkey. So when you think about the, the, the descendants of Japheth, you're thinking about uh, Europeans and Russians as well as maritime peoples. Then you look down in verses 6 through 20, and you see the human race continuing to branch out, this time through the descendants of Ham. Right? Uh, we see Cush, the father of the Ethiopians, who were known for their dark black skin. We see Egypt, who was the father of the Egyptians. Put, the father of the Libyans, and Canaan, the father of the Canaanites who dwelled in the promised land. In verse 14, we learn that the Philistines, who eventually live on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, cause all sorts of troubles for Israel in the days of David, they were descendants of Egypt. In verses 15 through 19, we learn of all the descendants of Canaan, many of whom's names will sound familiar to you as enemies of Israel. And all of these descendants represent the various peoples that Israel would be called upon to, to drive out of the promised land. And then you get to verses 21 through 31. And these are the descendants of Shem, also called the Semitic peoples, right? Uh, note, notice the name Eber there in verse 21, right? The father of the Hebrews. That's where we get that word Hebrew from, from that man's name, Eber. Uh, Shem's descendants were mainly Arabian peoples, including men like Asher, from whom the Assyrians would come. So there's all of this branching that is happening in Genesis 10, right? All of this, this human race going from, from one group into all of a sudden there's all of these nations filling the earth. Now, listen to Paul's words in Acts 17, verse 26. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, and he, talking about God, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, none of these peoples, none of these nations, none of these ethno-linguistic groups came about by accident. Every one of them was developed by God himself. Every one of these nationalities, every one of these cultures, every one of the races that now exists on planet Earth exists because of God's sovereign design. He determined where they would live. He determined when one people would be strong and when another people would be weak. And all of these various kinds of peoples with their languages and their customs and their cultures came about according to His plan for the glory of of his name. Does God do anything without a view to his glory? Answer? No. Everything God does is for his glory. So if Paul tells us that God was the sovereign hand working in Genesis 10, that God was the sovereign hand bringing all of these nations about, then we can know it was for his glory. So two points so far. There is a fundamental unity to the human race that far surpasses all our differences. And two, God purposed and is glorified in the diversity 
of the human race. Now, turn over to Genesis 12. By turning over to Genesis 12, we come to our third point, namely that God's redemptive plan is to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. God's redemptive plan is to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That is, God created the thousands of people groups on planet earth so that he could bring gospel blessings to each and every one of them ultimately filling heaven with a people that are fundamentally united and yet gloriously and amazingly diverse. The first place we see this in Scripture is in God's words to Abraham, at this point called Abram, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. So let's look at those verses. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, And your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. Catch this. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This comes right after Genesis 10, table of nations, families all over the earth. Genesis 11, telling us how God did it. Tower of Babel, confusing the languages, causing the people to spread. Right? We have these two chapters that are all about the human race going from one line to all of these lines. And then immediately we get to Genesis 12 and God says to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless every single one of them. Not some of the nations shall be blessed. No, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And from Genesis 12 on, we have this constant refrain of blessing coming to all the nations. God's purpose in our world was never an Israel-centered purpose. God's purpose in this world has always been a world-centered purpose, an all-peoples-centered purpose, right? In, In Psalm 67... Israel was told to sing, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. But why was Israel supposed to sing asking God for His blessings? Listen to the rest of the prayer. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. In other words, God's purpose in Israel was to bless them in such a way that the whole earth would be blessed. And ultimately, this is fulfilled in that true descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who would not be merely a Jewish Messiah. He would be a Savior to the whole world, any who would call upon His name. Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Redemption is all about God's plan to save the world through Jesus Christ. 
Okay? Now, the fourth point I want to make may be controversial, but I think it's quite clear in the Scriptures. Just as God has chosen to include people of all races in His spiritual family, so also God does not prohibit the joining of different races in our earthly families. Let me just say it again. Just as God has chosen to include people of all races in His spiritual family, so also He does not prohibit the joining of different races in our earthly families. This is an element of racism that we still see here in the South fairly often. Namely, this view that it is a sin, a moral wrongdoing for someone of one skin color to marry someone of another skin color. The problem with that view is that it is absolutely contrary to Scripture to say that that is a sin. Now, to show you that, I want us to look at the two wives of Moses. The two wives of Moses. Yes, Moses had two wives. We spent several, um, several months ago, we did a message on polygamy, talking about why even though Moses had two wives, we are not to follow his example. Uh, polygamy is a sin. Um, that said, we can learn something, though, from these two wives of Moses. So look with me first at Exodus 2. Exodus 2. The background is that Moses has recently committed murder. Moses has murdered an Egyptian man that he saw beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And Moses has learned that his murder, that his murder of this man has not been kept a secret. He was seen. Word has gotten around about his deed. He has been found out. So pick up in Exodus 2 verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses' first wife was a Midianite. Now, the Midianites were descendants of Shem, just like the Hebrews. So there was probably no skin color, at least not much skin color difference between Moses and Zipporah. In fact, what ought to grab our attention about this marriage is that Zipporah's dad was a pagan priest, right? He was a Midianite priest. By the way, do you know who the Midianites worshipped? Baal, 
Baal was the god of the Midianites. Her, her dad was a priest to the god Baal. Now, this kind of intermarriage, marrying someone who worships another god, this kind of marriage is prohibited throughout the Scriptures. But what we need to note is that at this point in Moses' life, Moses does not appear to be a converted man. Right? Moses is not living a godly life at this point. Not only is he, has he just committed murder, but there's no evidence that he's trying to follow God, no evidence that he's trying to serve God. In fact, it's not until after this marriage that we have the burning bush and Moses' encounter with God. It's after he enters into this marriage that Moses receives the call to, to lead Yahweh's people out of Egypt into the promised land. And so this marriage to Zipporah was a sin, but it reflects the fact that Moses probably did not have a relationship with God himself at this time. Now, in Exodus 18.2, and you don't have to turn there if you want to, but in Exodus 18.2, we learn that at some point between Exodus 3 and Exodus 18, Moses sent Zipporah back to her father's house. At some point, Moses sent his wife, as well as their two boys, away, back to their father's house, because there were issues, right? He became a follower of Yahweh. He became a follower of the true God, the God of the Hebrews. And he wasn't just a follower of the true God. He's now the leader of getting more people to follow the true God. And meanwhile, his wife is the daughter of a priest of Baal. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us all of the circumstances and timing around this event, but whatever the details were, something led Moses to send his wife back to her father. In Exodus 18, Zipporah's father, and in one place he's called Reuel, another place he's called Jethro, same man. Uh, in Exodus 18, Jethro brings Zipporah back to Moses. And the assumption seems to be that from Exodus 18 on, uh, if it had not already happened, Zipporah takes Moses' God as her own God. In Exodus 19 and 20, when Israel becomes a nation, when Israel enters into covenant with the true God, Zipporah is a part of that group, a part of that number. So Moses' first marriage was the kind of marriage that God forbids, marrying a person who does not have faith in Him. But Moses himself probably did not have faith in God when he entered into that marriage, and God mercifully ultimately brought both Moses and Zipporah to be followers of Himself. Now, strangely enough, it is Moses' second marriage that many people today have a problem with. In fact, Moses' own brother and sister were very upset by his marriage, his second marriage. Uh, racism is not a new phenomenon. Let me ask you this question. Which, which do you think is a sin? Marrying, person, marrying a person of another religion or marrying a person of another race? We never read of any protest against Moses for marrying a woman who worshipped Baal, or at least whose father was a priest of Baal. But we do read of people protesting against Moses for marrying a woman of another race. Yet it is marrying a woman of another religion that God forbids, and He does not forbid marrying someone of another race. Look at Numbers 12. Numbers 12. And let's look at this second marriage. 
Numbers 12. We'll start right at the beginning, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So we have Miriam and Aaron speaking against their brother Moses. Now Miriam's name is mentioned first because she was probably the one leading the way in this protest. And the protest seems to be over the fact that Moses has married a Cushite. Uh, Listen to one commentator talk about this term, Cushite. He says, The term Cushite is repeated twice in Numbers 12.1, probably for stress. Throughout the ancient world, this term carried strong connotations of black ethnicity. Ancient readers of this text would visualize a black woman from the region south of Egypt. Jeremiah, for example, refers to the unique skin of the Cushites without any need for explanation of who they were or where they lived. You know the verse that we've been quoting a lot lately? Can the leper change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Right? The actual word in the Hebrew is Cushite. Can the Cushite change his skin? What do you picture when you picture an Ethiopian? Do you not picture a person with about the darkest skin there can be? Well, that's, that's who a Cushite was in the days of Moses. This, this was not someone who was, who was kind of black. This was a person who was, who was very black, very, very dark, known for their blackness. And Miriam appears to be very upset about this, and Aaron as well. Why? Well, the text never tells us anything more than the fact that this woman was a Cushite. And it tells us that twice in the same verse. It seems to be stressing the fact she was a Cushite. What's more, the punishment that God brings on Miriam for this protest seems to be a very fitting punishment if racism is at the bottom of this. And I do think that's what was at the bottom of this. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Apparently, Miriam and Aaron used Moses' marriage to this Cushite woman as a wedge issue through which to exalt themselves. Miriam and Aaron wanted to turn the people of Israel away from Moses to themselves. And their assumption seems to have been, and it was probably right, that the people of Israel would not approve of Moses marrying this black woman. And so by pointing at Moses having done that, they were hoping to to cause the people to think less of Moses and to look to them for leadership. Now, This was not about religion. This Cushite woman was almost certainly a part of the people of Israel. Remember, when the Jews came out of Egypt, lots of other people came with them. At Mount Sinai, when the nation of Israel was established, 
and people entered into covenant with God. There were many Egyptians as well as other Africans who were present with the Jews there and became a part of God's people. Moses is nowhere near the region of Cush. Right? We have no record of Moses going to Cush to take a wife from there. This appears to be a Cushite woman who came out of Egypt with the Jews along with other Egyptians and other Africans and became a part of God's people at Mount Sinai. So the issue here is not religion. It's not Miriam saying he married a woman who worships another god. It appears to be what she stresses, what the passage stresses. He married a Cushite, right? a black-skinned woman. Miriam and Aaron are playing the race card, but in their case, they want to use the racism of the people to turn them against Moses and to themselves. And God responds, right? Those sobering words, and the Lord heard it, right? God responds with words. God responds with punishment. When God speaks, He doesn't address the racism. He addresses the even deeper issue, namely that Aaron and Miriam did not fear him, right? Miriam and Aaron knew that God had taken Moses to himself. Aaron and Miriam knew that God had treated Moses like no other man in the history of the world, allowing him to be so close to God, to have encounters with God, unlike any other person who had ever lived. It was God who had personally appointed Moses to be their leader. And so Miriam and Aaron's attack on Moses was an attack on God himself. And God says they should have known better. There was little fear of God in their hearts as they schemed against Moses. And so when God speaks, that's where his rebuke goes, right? Why did you not fear to do this thing? But then when he actually issues the punishment, And we have that in verse 10. It seems to strike right at the core of the racism that was involved. Verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, 